There is much that can divide us. Age, income, race, gender, the list goes on. There is much. And as individuals, we may find great comfort in being with people who are similar to us. And we have every right to find comfort being with people who are similar to us. Imagine always being encountering a group who you differed from in your day-to-day -day interactions, a group that judged you, perhaps, for your difference. Imagine how exhausting that would be, how spiritually taxing. Many people encounter this, and everyone has the right to find a group of support. And yet, as Jonathan Sachs wrote in the reading, difference does not diminish. It enlarges the sphere of human possibilities. How is it that difference makes something more possible for each person? He goes on to write in the same book that nothing has proved harder in the history of civilization than to see God or good or human dignity in those whose language is not ours, whose skin is not mine, he says, whose skin is of a different color, whose faith is not my faith, and whose truth is not my truth. He explains that what we need is not a return to 17th century toleration. That won't cut it. It is not enough to tolerate until the great faiths not merely tolerate, but find positive value in the diversity of the human condition. We will have wars, and their cost in human lives will continue to rise. And he speaks literally of wars and religions, and more figuratively, relating to ideologies and other forms of group violence. And there is nothing, he says, that is relativist about the idea of the dignity of difference. Nothing relativist in the dignity of that's a challenging one. We must value difference, dignify difference. Toleration isn't enough. When we observe, though, our human patterns that are stable over time, we must know this will be challenging work to appreciate differences. When we observe humans othering each other, when we observe more folks in echo chambers, online or in person, raging against diversity in their echo chambers, when we are easily divided by our differences time and time again, we must know this is hard work for us. Bridging divides and turning differences into dignified difference, dignified diversity. This will be some of the hardest work we do because it's not our habit. It isn't our empirical pattern. It is not sufficiently inculcated into the social fabric, and our leaders are not leading us in that direction. Still, Unitarian Universalism has, since its inception, taken on this challenge, wittingly or not. The challenge of the dignity indifference is baked into our first principle that was with us since the merger in 1961 when Unitarianism and Universalism, two Christian faiths, or previously Christian faiths, merged 
It was buried in in the third principle, and now it is our first. We covenant to promote and affirm the inherent worth and dignity of every person. The progressive currents in all the religions that have fed into Unitarian Universalism, not only the Christian traditions, but also the Eastern religions, including the teachings of Hinduism that were so strongly influencing the Transcendentalist movement, which is a foundation of our Unitarian heritage. They taught the inherent divinity within the inherent goodness of each person if we could only allow it to blossom. So we UUs, we are well-equipped, theologically speaking, I assure you, and well-charged to affirm the dignity of difference. We have our charge. And believing something is right, saying it as our principle, and being urged to do it are not the same thing as actually doing it are they? And we may have different views on how well we're doing this and on what next needs to be done. And very often when we are affirming the dignity of difference, it is not only the person doing the affirmation, but the person in mind who's going to be affirmed that should be consulted. The dignity of difference. How is each party on each side of the difference actually feel their being affirmed. With this charge, dignity, inherent worth, I went to seminary, right? As a UU to become a minister. And I realized very early on how hard it is for a well-meaning soul to find the dignity The time was summer 2014. The place was Chicago. The person was yours truly. I was taking a global religions class, and we learned about Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and more, but we learned about it through an intercultural experience, not only book reading. Only a few of us were Unitarian Universalist seminarians. Others had different goals and different purposes for being in that class. I had classmates from seven countries representing numerous faiths. And we started as classmates and strangers. We started with worlds between us, with trepidation about the other's views. The summer left us, though, with a deeper understanding. It's a happy ending a deeper understanding of our own faith and an appreciation for the other faiths in the class. It was a beautiful destination. (laughs) You know, you hear the singing, joy, but it was a difficult journey because of where we each started. I can speak for myself about where I started. I began with an assumption that belonging in a community was based on our common values, what we held in common. And here in this classroom, we held so little in common. In particular, with my background in domestic violence prevention and gender equality promotion, I was skeptical of finding common ground with some folks who I anticipated would hold restrictive views about women. 
So I felt unsure how generously I would be able to interact with strict adherents, for example, of conservative Islam. I entered the class with biases and stereotypes heaped to here, whether I liked it or not, with my Unitarian Universalist upbringing, with all my intercultural reading. Anticipating divisiveness, anticipating a need to defend my beliefs somehow, almost every one of us began this way, well-meaning and anticipating defense. Fortunately, the readings and the preparation were designed for this phenomenon. Part of our preparation involved, well, it's a UU seminary, so it involved reading a thousand pages on world religions, just to dispel a few myths and to give us a better understanding. But more important, what I found so valuable was that we were urged, actually assigned, to confront those areas where we felt the most uncomfortable. And for me, that meant reaching out to a large conservative mosque. And I did. And I was invited to join them and meet with the women there. When I arrived, I was welcomed in on the side of the building at the sisters' entrance. They showed me where they prayed. They explained the importance of their ritual cleansing, their ablutions before prayer. They showed me their prayer areas, where they met in small rooms and had uh, TVs on the wall, where they watched the men and the imam in prayer in the sanctuary area. The women were careful to explain to me why being in these back rooms and wearing the chador and burqa were signs of dignity for women. I had all of these ideas and these biases about what the garb meant and about their placement in a small, cramped prayer room, looking at the men in what I deemed as the nice suits. My biases were loudly triggered. It was there. I was in this moment, talking to these gentle women who were kind enough to invite me into their space. My gender equality and anti-oppression hopes for the world felt threatened. I thought I needed to defend that, perhaps to teach them something. I didn't, don't worry. But that little, that little idea in the back of my head was there. It was there, and I knew it wasn't what I was supposed to be doing in this assignment. So fortunately, I remembered my reading had included the writings of Rifat Hassan, a renowned feminist Islamic scholar. And in an essay that we read, Members One of Another, Gender Equality and Justice in Islam, she had told us how the pre-Islamic roots of Islam demonstrate the lie that secluding women was some kind of Quranic ideal. She quotes Corinthians, Christian scripture, and other sources to demonstrate how veiling women was part and parcel of discriminatory practices of the time in Christian and Jewish roots, but the wider culture. And she goes on that it was only due to the oppression and impoverishment of Muslim women that these outdated practices have been allowed to persist for so long. And on top of that, she traces how specific conflicts and divisiveness between Islam and other religions, and between men and women, have, instead of leading to an increased equality for women, have led to greater retrenchment of harsh, outdated practices as a method of defending faith, utilizing women to defend it. So, 
I breathed, which is always highly recommended. <laughs> when you notice yourself getting judgmental, breathe. And I shifted from wrestling with my inner judge to curiosity. I didn't know what to do, but I could ask a question. And I asked them what they found challenging about the wider community. And what were their hopes in general? Well, a youth came forward and told me how she was harassed at school. How people in her high school hallways would whisper and yell that she was a terrorist. She longed for some basic, basic acceptance of her religion and not to be judged, let alone judged, harassed because of her faith. Several other women shared their concern for impoverished families and the rising homelessness problem in their area. And they shared their plans to open a free medical clinic in the whole part of town. We had something, a lot, in common. I was enlightened. I could have spent my time with them trying to convince them of flaws in their faith, or at least analyzing what I perceived as flaws. Or I could find our common hopes. The experience challenged me and allowed me to find something far more life-giving than divisiveness. There was some creativity. It was something I deeply needed. I gained an appreciation also for their prayer practices, their five-time daily ritual prayer, and how that was grounding for them to pull them out of whatever torrent there was in their life and to give them a centering moment of how they could be their best selves in the world. I don't manage five times a day, but I do more. And part of it is inspired by their words, more than I would have other words for us. I don't do five. I don't do more than five. I do one. Through all this, I had come to terms with the fact that my judgmental impulse was not helpful. And indeed, it created part of the problem. It could drive a wedge between us and impede their hopes, and my hopes. I needed to find something more. I needed to not give up my convictions, but I found a middle way. There are real pressing differences among us, among us in this world and among us in this room. There are pressing differences. They can divide us further. But division is not the only answer to difference. Leonard Swedler, a scholar of interreligious dialogue, has built a framework. It's a framework for building connections across religious and other ideological differences. In the dialogue decalogue, which was modeled after the Amendments, it's evolved over time. He describes some principles of dialogue across difference. And here they are. See if you ever try to engage these when you are talking with somebody who differs from you. Seek learning. Be willing to engage in exploring another person's point of view. Be honest and sincere. Don't generalize and stereotype the other person. Let each person describe for themselves and don't assume you know where you're going to disagree or where you're going to agree. 
seek to learn as equals, not to teach the other person. Build mutual trust and have a healthy ability to criticize one's own ideology or belief system. Finally, try to imagine what is it that's meaningful to the other person. Try to think in their shoes. I think this process, very loosely followed, is what allowed me to connect with the women at the mosque. I was seeking learning, as were they, and we seemed willing to experience and explore the other's point of view. We described our own experiences and perspectives. I think there was definitely some teaching going on, they to me and a little bit of me to them, but we were honest about it and in fact noted it when we were talking. They said something along the lines of, well, I know we're trying to, you know, proselytizing. She didn't say proselytizing, a little bit. But then there was humor in that, honesty, and we ended up building trust with that honesty. I wouldn't say that my faith changed at all, or theirs, but through the conversation something happened. I gained a greater appreciation for them, sure, but the, the surprise for me, was that I gained a better understanding of my own faith. I realized some pieces that were core to my faith that I hadn't really realized were central to me before. So far, entering into dialogue across ideological and religious differences allows us each to clarify, to better understand ourselves and the other person. The practice allows us to appreciate a human being unconditionally. Dialogue Swidler cautions has to be mutual. It doesn't work if one person is set on converting you or arguing with you or teaching you your wrongness. But when it is mutual, it has the capacity to provide unconditional appreciation of a human being. Jonathan Sachs wrote from the reading, we will learn to live with diversity once we understand the God-given, world-enhancing dignity of difference. But to get there, he cautions, we must realize the danger of wishing, wishing that everyone should be the same. Connection across our divides is fraught with the desire for sameness, is it not? We long for agreement. I wonder if it's a human tendency or a cultural teaching. But we seem to be biased against differences and even aggressive towards differences. Where there are differences, people want to seem to want to rally around them as though they were divides, anticipating all kinds of terrible things as a result of the difference. One difference that has become a divide, yet again brought to the fore, surrounds LGBTQ equality. I had hoped that there was a growing proportion of America that valued the dignity of different forms of consensual romantic love and valuing the relationships of same-sex partners as everyone. And I hoped that we could treat everyone's identity with dignity, including the people who have had to claim their identity because they weren't given the right gender at birth. I had thought we were getting there, but those who oppose LGBTQ employment protections cannot seem to appreciate difference Perhaps they see only biases and fear. Perhaps they anticipate the need to defend themselves, when indeed all we have 
is a gift of diversity, which is an opportunity for each person, everyone, to come to know themselves better and what they mean here on this planet. On October 8th, on Tuesday, the Supreme Court will be hearing oral arguments in the case, three cases of employment discrimination. Two people fired because they were gay, one person fired for being transgender. Unitarian Universalist clergy and others will be gathering in front of the Supreme Court of the United States on Tuesday from 8 to 12. I'll be there. Brad will be there. Look for us if you go. We are asking the justices to build a bridge of empathy to value the inherent dignity of these three people who were fired, to help this nation connect across difference instead of filling divides and dividing people further apart. The country is struggling with division broadly. Differences of all kinds are being exploited, playing on biases and fear to divide us. We get to counter them. Our faith calls us to counter division with belonging. We find ways to belong to one another. I found ways to belong to this world with the women at the mind, despite whatever preconceived notions I came with. And was relieved of. We do this not only to hold our communities together and avoid violence or aggression, but to retain our birthright, to retain your birthright, which is to know yourself more fully and to be known more fully by others throughout your life on this precious little brief moment of time that we get on the planet to know and be known for your full self. A beginning to this work is to find places to inter-dialogue and build a bridge of empathy. I leave you with a story that is just the briefest dialogue, the briefest opening to, to empathy. One day I was on a subway. I just got on this crowded subway car, and there were only a handful of seats open, including two seats open behind what I guessed was a Muslim couple. The woman was wearing a kaimar, a garb that many Muslim women wear that covers their head, neck, and shoulders. So I assumed she was Muslim. I sat behind them, and just as the car got going, somebody at the back of the car starts yelling, shouting a sermon. He shouts that everyone must pray to Jesus only. He shouts that the unbelievers will be punished. And he shouts that he, that God, is watching the unbelievers through him, the shouting man, on the train. This is intended for everybody, but especially the couple in front of me. They grow increasingly nervous. As the sermon goes on, he doesn't just stop. He's going on and on. And the woman leans to the man next to her, and she says, Is it us? They seem to be wondering if he's talking about them. And I remembered back in my readings that the Quran teaches that Allah looks favorably on those who believe they are following God's will, even if they do not follow Allah. And I thought, a way maybe to talk to her 
this stranger on the train. As the next stop approached, he was still going on. She looked back towards him, and I took the opportunity to lean forward and smile and say, I know, this is scary. Do you think maybe he's trying to do some good for his God? And her demeanor changed. I don't know if she was less scared, but she seemed less alone. She looked and nodded. I guess he's trying to do his God's will. I don't think that that made her feel safer, and I'm sure that when they got off at the next stop, it was for their safety, probably not so much their destination, although I don't know. But I do know that as she got off the train, she turned and she clasped my hand in hers, and she said, You never know what is possible when you imagine somebody else's experience and connect across what could be a divide. Something became possible when I imagined something and when I dared to reach out to her. That's something that is born out of dialogue and is only possible with true dialogue. I believe that something is powerful enough to transform our world at this very moment if we could only find our ways into it. Dialogue has to be mutual, and it is hard work. If we could enter it, we open up possibility of creativity for ourselves and for the relationship. It's a power that can heal division, a power to find a part of our humanity that lies only in our differences. May we all be so blessed as to come to know in our lives our fullest humanity. Amen.